0: my friend Sally Dubinsky and her entire team. In fact, you can participate today by walking outside of those doors, outside of Common Grounds, and picking up a baby bottle as we feature their baby bottle campaign today and throughout this season. Now, I also want to open this morning with a testimony from Pregnancy Help Center. It's the story of a young lady who I will call Kate. Kate was 22 years old. She had just finished her pre-med work, had just graduated, Uh, was getting ready to go to medical school, and she was a brilliant young gal. She actually had uh, the world by the tail at this point in her life, and she was ready to, to blaze some incredible trails. And it was at that time that she got the news that she had become pregnant. And for Kate, this was really devastating news on a few levels. I mean, first, she had no family and friends in the area to help her with this child, Her boyfriend, uh, who was also a pre-med major, had just left for medical school, so she was very alone. She had no job, no income to support a family. And so, in her mind, there wasn't very many options on the table. I mean, this was a really hopeless situation for her. Her back was against the wall, and you might say that, at that moment, Kate was running on empty. It was in that moment that she walked into Pregnancy Help Center to inquire about getting an abortion. And she walked into the center, and Sally and her team, as they often do, they always do, listened. And they listened with care to Kate and to her story. And they also presented her with gentleness and wisdom some other options, some other options that she might have in particular to carry this child. And so they had that conversation, and they sent her on her way. And as they always do, uh, Sally's team there follows up with any of the clients that come through the door. And a couple of weeks later, they made the call to Kate. And to their joy and to their surprise, Kate had made the decision to carry the baby. And it's a great story because, and I'm telling you the truth here, her due date is today. This is a real story. It's a real person. And she is scheduled to deliver this baby today. And moreover, Kate is connecting with a local church in the area. She is building some relationships with the women there. In fact, they threw her a baby shower a couple of months ago. She's decided to put off medical school for a year. And she is experiencing a whole new measure of hope and, fullness. and it's an exciting story. Now, many of you don't know what it feels like. In fact, probably most of you don't know what it feels like to be a pregnant 22-year-old with their back against the wall, to have that sense of hopelessness in that situation. But I would gather that most of us in this room today understand what it's like to feel hopeless. We know that feeling of not being able to make it till tomorrow, at least it certainly feels that way. We know what it's like to have our backs up against the walls when the pressures of tr- and trials of life are pressing down on us. We know what it's like to f- be running on empty. And most of us in this room, as we profess Jesus to be our Lord and King, those of us that do understand know that, that Christianity is not an exemption from these trials being a Christian does not guarantee you the easy life in fact sometimes it seems like the fact that we are Christians brings on some of these trials and brings on some of this discouragement and suffering whether it's persecution or rejection or grievance over our own sin or the sin of others the fact that we're Christians oftentimes brings about these seasons of suffering it's, it's sometimes it feels like more like the, the pollen that attracts the sting of life than the citronella candles that are supposed to keep those stings away I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why am I going through this trial? Why am I experiencing this time of suffering? I mean, I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was God's kid. Is my faith not strong enough? Am I doing something wrong? Where is God when I'm going through this suffering? What is he up to? Is there, is there any purpose to these trials? Or is, is all this just meaningless? Is all of this just vanity? These are real questions. Is there any way to experience fullness when we find ourselves running on empty now what we're going to do today is come into god's word in the book of first peter and before we do i want to pray as we ask those questions together father i do thank you that we can come to your word with anticipation and enthusiasm knowing that you're a god that speaks to us knowing that even as we have real questions hard questions that we can come and we can find counsel and comfort through your word we thank you for that in jesus name amen so why don't you meet me in your Bibles, would you, in the book of 1 Peter? This is our second message in a series. We're going to be spending the next several months in 1 Peter. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1014. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verses 3 to 12, the passage that Nathan read part of earlier. And as you turn to page 1014, I just want to tell you that questions about hopelessness, questions about how to be sustained in the Christian life, Questions about the purpose of trials are not new questions. In fact, as we enter into the world of Peter's readers, we can can know that these were likely questions that they were asking. In fact, this was one of the very reasons that Peter wrote this letter as he addressed it to them as elect exiles, people who were walking through a really difficult time. They were wondering how and where can we experience fullness when we're running on empty. And so we're going to look at this together. Beginning in verse 3, we're going to see... Peter talking about the grand subject of salvation, and he gives us a few insights into what this salvation looks like. The very first thing that we see Peter mention is that God's salvation provides us with new birth. The starting point of encouragement that, that Peter begins with for these weary believers was the new birth that they had received by God's mercy. Take a look down at verse three in your Bibles. Follow along as I read out loud. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, in our culture, what we have tended to do is categorize Christians that say they're born again into this little eclectic bucket, which is part of a, a much broader stream of Christianity. So we've got these born again Christians here, and often we caricature them as Christians that stand on big boxes in the middle of busy street corners. We caricature them as Christians that hold up Big John 316 signs in the end zones of football games. And they uh, watch televangelists in white suits on popular Christian networks. That's what born-again Christians are. Well, first of all, that's not the greatest character of a born-again Christian. Can I tell you that? The other thing I want to tell you is that the Bible makes absolutely no distinction, no categorical distinction between Christians that are born-again and then Christians that are not born-again. The way that the Bible presents God's salvation experience is that if you indeed are a Christian, you have been born again. God has caused you to be born again. And the first insight that Peter gives us into what this new birth looks like is that it's an act of God's initiating mercy. It's according to the great mercy of God that he causes us to be born again. It's such a rich little phrase. I mean, the mercy of God, that is God withholding that which we deserve and giving us something else giving us new life in Christ and it's not only mercy but it's initiating mercy what does that mean did you notice that little word caused that Peter uses in verse 3 he's caused us to be born again you cannot make yourself born again did you know that my kids and your kids did not cause themselves to be born that had, there's something that had to initiate that process and we're not going to talk about that today but they didn't, they didn't have the capacity to make themselves born again it's not in their scope, it's not in their nature the spiritual birth is absolutely no different God causes us to be born again and it's by his mercy that he causes that new birth the other thing that we see Peter mention here about the new birth is that it produces a living hope through, through the resurrection the end of verse 3, look at it with me says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, I want to talk for a minute about hope. When we use the word hope, when we say that we hope to do something or we hope that something happens, there's so often associated with that word this question mark at the end, this sense of open endedness, isn't there? I'll give you an example. Uh, yesterday, before my wife went to work, I said, Baby, I hope to have those two baskets of laundry folded for you by the time we get back. What are you laughing at? (laughs) Now, we've been married 12 years, and my wife knows me well enough to know what I mean when I say, I hope to have the laundry folded. Right? It might happen, but it might not. There are no guarantees. We hope to do something, and so when we speak of that, it might happen, it might not happen. The Greek word that Peter uses here for hope is not like that. It's a word that means a favorable and confident expectation. What Peter is saying here is that we've got a sure thing. It's a certain hope that's delivered through the resurrection. It's it's through the certain resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we are connected to this hope. It's a resurrection, truthfully, that's rooted in history. Rooted in the eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people. It's a resurrection also that serves as a prototype for those that trust in Jesus by faith that we will follow him in that resurrection. And so as we talk about the certainty of hope, you might catch this swell of hope that would be rising in Peter's readers as they labored along this journey as exiles. It's a hope that should be rising in us. The third and the final insight into the new birth that Peter mentions here. Clarifies that hope. It's not just a generalized hope, it's a particular hope. And the new birth secures us a glorious future inheritance. We are born again, verse 4 says, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, Peter's audience would have been familiar with the idea of an inheritance as we are. They would have probably thought in terms of the inheritance, the blessing of land that God often promised in the Old Testament. But Peter is talking about a different kind of inheritance here. He's talking about inheritance that would never fade, that would never spoil, an inheritance that would never end. The inheritance that he's talking about is our completed salvation, our place in the eternal city of God, in the kingdom of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Truthfully, it's an inheritance that's hard for us to imagine. But I want us, just for a second, to try. I want you to put on your imagination hat with me, and I want you to imagine a life without the consequences and pain of sin. Imagine a life where everyone present lives for the glory and the adoration of Jesus. Imagine a life where there's no need for hospitals because there's no cancer, there's no heart disease, there's no kidney failure. Imagine a place as we celebrate African American History Month that Dr. King said, justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Imagine a place like that. That is the inheritance that Peter is talking about here. It's the eternal city of God. And it's our place in that city. It's our inheritance. And not only is it glorious, it's also guaranteed It's a guaranteed inheritance, and this guarantee comes in a couple of different forms. First, look down at the end of verse 4. Peter tells us that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven. It's kind of like uh, having a a guaranteed will call ticket being held for you at will call. All you got to do is go pick the thing up. It's got your name written all over it. You just have to show up. Now, the downside to that is sometimes we feel like we're not even going to make it to tomorrow, let alone make it to will call. Well, the guarantee of our inheritance comes in another form. That inheritance is kept for us and guaranteed for us, but the great joy is that we are also kept for it. With that, I want to ask my friends Mark and Adam to come up here to the front of the worship center, and as they come up, I want you to know that the same unmeritable grace that causes us to be born again is the same unmeritable grace that secures our place in God's future kingdom. It secures our inheritance. In other words, the inheritance is kept for us and we are kept for it. Peter refers to his audience in verse five, if you look at it, as those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word that Peter uses there for guarded is a military term. It it describes a, a garrison. It describes a bunch of troops that are providing protection against an enemy. Now, let me just tell you that if I had to go to a destination, and that destination required me to walk through a shady side of town in a shady city, can I tell you that if I attempted to make that journey on my own, especially dressed like Mr. Rogers, I probably would not make it. I was ironing this outfit yesterday and Sarah said, you're not going to wear the cardigan, are you? I said, I'm going to wear the cardigan. But if I went walking through the shady side of town, I I may not make it. However, I want to introduce you to my friends' reason and persuasion. (laughs) If If I were to attempt that very same journey being guarded by these two guys, I'm as good as there. I am absolutely there, aren't I? Because I'm guarded. I'm guarded by a sense of power that's outside of myself. appreciate it guys thanks for thanks for coming up I uh, I don't need to tell you that this world is like a shady side of town and we are walking through it Peter's audience was walking through it I wonder if you're here this morning feeling totally alone and totally abandoned as you walk on that journey if you are feeling that way today I hope and pray that you are encouraged by the fact that as we exercise a living faith through that faith we are being guarded by God's power to receive an eternal inheritance that's more wonderful than we could ever imagine now we spent a good bit of time talking about the new birth there's a lot that's like a theological filet mignon that we've been chewing on for the last few minutes there's a lot there it's it comes by God's initiating mercy it it produces this living hope and it secures this glorious future inheritance but I wonder, as you you hear all of this good news about the future, if you're curious, as I am, as to what that means for the present. I mean, that's wonderful that that the great by and by is coming, but what does that mean my life is going to look like between now and then? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Peter mentions this. As we continue on, we're going to see that he says God's salvation also provides a buoyant joy. A joy that is absolutely resilient. A joy that's, that's settled. Maybe you've heard of the movie Hope Floats. This is joy floats. I mean, the, the, the joy that God provides us in his great salvation is like a little unassuming buoy that just absolutely refuses to sink even amidst a vast ocean, even amidst crashing waves. That's what the joy of salvation is like. It's a buoyant joy. And Peter gives us a few insights into this buoyant joy. First is that, it's sustained in a right perspective of trials by gaining a right perspective of our present trials we can experience and exercise a buoyant joy as Christians look down in your Bibles at verse 6 he says in this you rejoice he's talking about the hope of the future though now for a little while here's the present if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so the present is this intersection of buoyant joy and various trials. Now, let me just emphasize for a second what Peter is not saying here about buoyant joy. He is not saying, just put on a happy face. I mean, just put on a little pretension. I mean, everything's going to be okay. That is not what buoyant joy is all about at all. I mean, you can see very clearly, he says, you have been grieved The New American Standard translates it, you have been distressed. He's talking about real pain here, real hurt, real sorrow. But what he is saying is that amidst that sorrow, amidst those trials, God extends to us a buoyant joy, a sustaining joy. And one of the reasons is because against the backdrop of eternity, our trials are temporary. That's the perspective that he's he's emphasizing. Though now for a little while you've been grieved. And that's not just a trite little piece of advice. I mean, he's saying maintain as best as you can. Maintain your eternal perspective. Pain will not have the last word in your life. Jesus will have the last word. Keep your eyes on the horizon as you journey through the shady side of town. Keep your eyes up. Last summer, our family took a little day trip uh, to Cleveland. We went to see the Indians. I'm thankful that Pastor Rick mentioned that spring training is coming because it really is a sign of warmer weather. But we went uh, for a little day trip to Cleveland, and you guys know about how long it takes to get up to Cleveland, it's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and so we uh, got out the door, we got into Interstate 11, and uh, all of a sudden, one of the kids, I forget who it was, said, are we there yet, Dad? We've been in the car for like three hours. And I think they had been sitting still for about 10 minutes at that point, but you get the idea, I mean, their perspective on time and their perspective on the journey and the destination was not quite right, and so Peter is saying here, maintain that eternal perspective. Not only buoyant joy, uh, we see it being sustained by that perspective of trials, but also by the divine purpose of trials. So that joy is sustained in the purpose of trials. Have you ever said to yourself, why as a Christian is this happening to me right now? Why is God letting me go through this? Why would he allow me to go through this? Well, Peter gives us at least one reason here in verse 7 look at it he says you've been grieved by various trials so that anytime you see the word so that in your Bibles rise up and pay attention because something important is coming so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ friends trials refine our faith in the way that gold is refined in the fire Now, if gold could talk to us, if it had lungs and nerve endings to experience pain, I think it would probably say that that time in the fire is not a ton of fun. It's not a barrel of fun. But that time through the fire does have a purpose. It's to refine the gold. It's to test its authenticity. As you probably know, the uh, Winter Olympics are going on right now. And we are very much an Olympics family. We love to watch. And I love to watch the backstories that NBC does a great job in putting together. And almost without exception, as we look at these highly successful athletes, we see this this coach behind the scenes that is pushing them and pushing them and putting them through these rigorous training activities and truthfully bringing them a measure of pain. And yet, when they win the gold medal, I heard a gal just the other day, she said, I'm just so thankful for my coach. I'm thankful that he pushed me and I'm thankful that he pushed me to the red line. There is a purpose to that training. There is a purpose to those times in the fire. I love the way that John Calvin handles this part of the passage. He says, if God afflicted us without a cause it would be grievous to bear. Hence Peter argues for consolation from the design or the purpose of God. Not because the purpose always appears to us but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be because it is God's will. The third major encouragement that Peter gives about buoyant joy is that it is sustained By a persevering faith. Persevering faith and buoyant joy are inseparable realities in the Christian life. Peek down at verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is a wonderful description of persevering faith, isn't it? I mean, when the the fog of your trials and your suffering is so thick that you can't see two feet in front of you, what do you do? You have to step forward by faith. And it's no accident that Peter makes Jesus the object of persevering faith here. Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the object of our joy. If you get nothing out of this this morning, I want you to remember this. Persevering faith is not the little Christian that could... Persevering faith is not, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think. That's not what persevering faith is. Persevering faith is, I know Jesus has. I know Jesus has. I know Jesus has. And friends, if that does not support that buoyant joy during times of trials, then then nothing will. I know Jesus has. I want you to remember that today, especially as you are going through a really difficult time in your life, if you're feeling abandoned, if you're feeling like there's no point to the suffering that you're experiencing, I just want to encourage and affirm you that that God is present with you. He's not abandoned you, and that pain is not going to have the last word in your life. It's not your final resting place. There's a horizon. There is a day coming, the perspective, the divine purpose of trials, and also that persevering faith. We've been asking the big question this morning, how can we experience fullness when we're running on empty? And I think it's really interesting that to this point, Peter has given a doctrinal instruction. He's he's given them theology. He's talking about all about salvation. He's talking about a salvation that that gives us the new birth, a salvation that provides us this buoyant joy. And guess what? It doesn't stop there. This is where the encouragement continues. In the final section of this passage, we're going to see that Peter says God's salvation provides us Great privilege. We possess a highly privileged salvation. This is a neat little set of verses in the New Testament. Let's look at verses 10 to the beginning of verse 12. Concerning this salvation, he says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. These verses can sound a little bit confusing, but but what Peter is doing is he's calling his readers to remember the incredible treasure of being on this side of the cross. It's the same side that we're on today. He's saying, you are a privileged people. I understand you're being persecuted for your faith right now. I understand you're experiencing trials and suffering, but I want you to remember that you are not insignificant. You are a privileged people. And we see first that that privilege comes from the Spirit-inspired scriptures. The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, as we think about the prophets, showcases the privilege of our salvation. Did you know that the Old Testament is not just this randomly compiled group of unconnected stories that show us brave men and women of the faith that we are to emulate? Now we can certainly make application in those ways from the Old Testament and we should but the primary purpose of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament really is, is the Spirit-inspired narrative of God's promised salvation that would come through a character, an anticipated character, called the Messiah. And so the Old Testament is a gift to see and savor Jesus, the Messiah. It points us forward to his sufferings and the subsequent glories. And it points us forward then by implication to the privileges that we have as his people. We also see that great privilege comes from the spirit-empowered gospel. The gospel unveils and affirms the privilege for those of us that live on this side of the cross. Look down at the way verse 12 finishes. He says that they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I don't think any of us want our kids to grow up taking their privileges for granted, do we? I mean, we want them to to understand their privileges. We want them to appreciate their privileges, but perhaps most of all, We want them to be encouraged by their privileges when times get tough. We want them to be encouraged by those privileges when they feel like they are running on empty. And so here Peter, like a concerned parent, is calling his readers back to the privilege that they have to be able to stand on this side of the cross and see the unfolding mystery of salvation to see the, the mystery resolved of how sinful, rebellious people like us can ever find our way back into a right relationship with our creator. It's a mystery, and it's a mystery unveiled in the gospel. The mystery of how God himself will actually accomplish this salvation through the work of Jesus. The mystery of how Jesus, the unlikely Messiah, did not ascend to his throne by using political power or manipulation or abuse or persuasion, no, through suffering and through the weakness of the cross. Friends, the mystery and the paradox of the gospel, and we've got to get this, the mystery is that we have the opportunity to experience a salvation of privilege because we serve a savior that laid his privileges aside. In fact, that's where we're gonna close today. I wanna invite the music ministry team back to the platform and we're gonna close this morning in Philippians chapter two. And in doing so, I want to make as clear as possible the answer to that big question that we've been asking all morning. The question of where and how can we experience fullness when we're running on empty, when we're feeling hopeless, when we're feeling backed against the wall. How can we experience fullness in that moment? Philippians 2 says of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross do you see what's happening here you see the wonder of it Jesus Christ the privileged one of heaven laid down his privileges so that we could experience the privileges of salvation Jesus Christ, the privileged one of heaven, who walked the streets of gold, laid down those privileges to walk the road of a suffering exile. Jesus Christ, who could have exercised his privilege as God to call a legion of angels to rescue him from the cross and destroy his enemies, laid that privilege aside so that those very same angels could stand and wonder at the privilege of those that he came to save. That is the mystery, and that is the answer, the remarkable answer that the fullness of salvation is accomplished by a Savior who is willing to empty himself, and that is a Savior that we can trust, and that's the big idea of the day, the answer to the question that we've been asking all morning. When you are running on empty, you need to put your faith in the fullness of Jesus and the sufficient salvation that he provides. When you're ready to throw in the towel, when the weight and pressures of this life, when sorrow and suffering have just about crushed you, the answer is not to stir up strength in yourself. The answer is that your sustenance will only come from outside of yourself and the one who is willing to lay down his privileges so that you could be privileged. Put your faith in the fullness of Jesus and the sufficient salvation he provides. It's a salvation that brings us a new birth, a whole new life. A salvation that provides us a certain hope, a sure thing through the resurrection. A salvation that secures us an inheritance and it secures us for that inheritance. It, it gives us buoyant joy and incredible privilege. And we are talking this year about growing up together, taking steps forward together as a congregation. And, and I have to say that, that in a group this size and, and in a text that is so clearly focused on what salvation is, I think today is the day for some of you to take that first step in growing up together and that's becoming a Christian. If you're sitting in your seat today and you'd say, Chris, there is something about the wonder and beauty of Jesus that I am seeing in this moment that I've never seen before. That's what it feels like when God causes you to be born again, to have an affection for the one that you really didn't think much of when you walked in here a couple hours ago. I want to encourage you to respond today by exercising a living faith, by trusting, counting on Jesus' work to save you. Not your own efforts to save you, not your own morality, not your own goodness, but His goodness. And by turning away from an old life that rejects Jesus' rule and lordship and accepts it instead. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for 100 years, you come to Old North for 150 years, but today you are encouraged in a fresh way. Maybe you walked in feeling totally insignificant. You're working 70 hours a week, you're on the rat wheel, you're thinking you're just another faceless person that's going to live and die and that's going to be the end of it. Can I remind you today of the privilege that you have as a Christian? Can I encourage you with that truth? Jesus thought enough of you to make himself insignificant so that you could be significant. It's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason to worship as we all should in the truth that when we're running on empty we can trust and rest in the fullness of our Savior and the salvation that he provides. Let's sing and respond together.